feel so exposed in these underwear. Do you? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what are they? Calvin Klein, Old Navy? I think they're Old Navy. These ones are Old Navy. Those yeah. ones are Old Navy? These aren't my Calvins. No. It's okay. I'm wearing fucking mud from like Zellers. Nice. Those are very seen kid. I know. They have skulls and crossbones all over them. Oh my god, I know. Pink and black. I had a ma- um, um, I had a matching bra. Ooh. Yeah. I think I still have it somewhere in my house. You ready to start our short story episode? <laughs> yeah, always. Everybody, take your pants off and put your undershirts on. We're back for another episode of Pantless Pros. Hello, everybody. Hi. Today we're talking about our favorite short stories. Well, maybe not our favorite short stories, but some short stories. One of my favorites. And uh, is this one of your favorite short stories? I would say so. Yeah, yeah I like it a intense. lot. It is intense. So we're going to talk about the short stories, talk about some social and cultural significance that the stories pertain to, and then at the end, we're going to create our own short story, the way lazy people and elementary school kids do, Mad Libs. We're going to play Mad Libs Mad at the end. Libs. So we'll end off with a little levity, because both of these stories are a little heavy. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so mine is, uh, it's called Dance Me Outside. So it's actually from a collection. How about that? (laughs) I know. I know. Ever since then, it's just like, oh, that girl has ruined everything. (laughs) Everything. Um, So, yeah. So this story, Dance Me Outside. How about that? Was uh, written by W.P. Kinsella in 1977. Um, So a little bit of the background on the story. It's actually... It's fictitious, but it's based on um, a native reserve in Alberta. Back then, it was known as Habama Crossing. I might be butchering that. Um, Or Habama. Now, it's actually known as Maskwasis, I think is how you pronounce it. Once again, I'm not very good with pronouncing things, so... Yeah, but I mean, those are hard to pronounce, so it's all good. So, so that's where it started. Um... And so basically what happens is um, this girl named Little Margaret is murdered after a dance um, after she left with a group of white guys in a car. Which should be a warning to all of you. Yeah. Never get in a group, uh, never get into a car with a group of whiteies after you've been all liquored up at the Legion. Yeah, pretty much. Um, So basically what happened was I'll just... The story is told by um, Silas Ermanskin, who is one of the um, one of the groups. He's part of a group of teenagers that hang out at the dances. That'd be a so, great name for a Harry Potter character. Ermanskin, Silas Ermanskin. Yeah, yeah, I think so too. Um, there's also his buddy Frank Fence Post. While we're losing creativity on names quickly, uh, that seems like he had to come up with a name. 
in an instant. <laughs> They're like, well, what's the other character? He's like, uh, Frank, uh, fence post. Actually, funny enough, fun little fact is um, some of these are actually real names. Okay, is Frank Fence Post a real name? I'm not sure, but um, some of them I'm are guessing not. true family <laughs> names. So, uh, I think Fence Post probably isn't a, a family I hope, name. I would hope not, because that kind of sucks. It looked like you, anytime you were you got ID'd, it looked like you were giving a fake ID. Yeah, that's true. Frank Fence Post. Or like if the cops were like, what's your name? And you're like, Frank uh, Fence Post. Well, he did get a lot of flack for these stories because of just how they represented native people. Indigenous we'll people, yeah, to yeah, be we'll more get politically correct, but um, so we'll go there. Uh, I'll tell the rest of the story and then we'll go there. Yeah, okay. I'll try not to interrupt. <laughs> it's okay. Um, so okay, so Silas is telling the story, uh, and he said that they cut her belly with a knife and stuffed her in a garbage can. So that's pretty not good. Um, so. The RCMP is out on a hunt for who murdered her, and they find Clarence Gaskell, who is the leader of this pack of men, um, and his friends as well. So the friends are taken into questioning with him, but they're let go after they say that all they did was sit in the car while he messed around with her. Which is even a weird move. Yeah, I would think so. I'm very uh, shy. I'd have to... I could never fool around in front of the in front of a car full of other people no for sure wasn't isn't there like a movie where someone has like a butler or something that like just stands there and watches i I don't know i don't know i don't know i just remember i just remember that where it's like don't you want to like turn around or something was it mr deeds it might have been mr deeds I'm not sure. I don't okay. really remember. Anyway, I just va- I vaguely remember that. So kind of let's see, think of that. Just like, don't worry. Just I'm not even here. Arthur, maybe. Arthur. Could be. <laughs> what were they doing? Um, not the cartoon. Oh, I thought you meant, Oh, the movie. <laughs> I thought you meant Arthur, like <laughs> the little animals. Yeah, Arthur was getting his fuck on. <laughs> yeah, that's why that fist became so popular. Yeah. Anyway, I'm getting a little off, off topic here. So, basically what happens is they say they let him go. They said they just messed around and um, she said something that he didn't like. Now, there's actually a funny part that I'm going to read because um I'll read it later because the, you have to go there you have to get to the whole scene where it happened. Um so she said something that he didn't like. And uh, he's known for getting mean when he drinks, so he lashed out on her. Uh, so the Silas and his friends have gone to court to watch. So they, they're the lawyer is explaining that she said something. She said it, and he freaked out on her. One of the interesting parts of the story that you read to me last night that I thought was that stuck out to me was uh, the idea that when they bring him to court to be tried, 
they clean him up. So yeah. they give him a haircut. They put a, he has like missing teeth because I guess he's just like a hillbilly guy. Who gets into fights and shit. Yeah, yeah, he gets into fights. So a couple of his teeth got knocked out. So they give him teeth to fill in the gaps. They give him a haircut. They clean him up. They give him a shower. They give him new clothes and stuff. So when he gets there, they say that he looks like a missionary, like a, yeah. like a Mormon him, or a Christian missionary. They give him a script to go by too. But that's so true that they do do that. Yeah. And that's so interesting that you have to prove a murder happened beyond a reasonable doubt. And we go so far in this theatrics of the law that we we put people in costumes and try to make them look like different people than they actually are. So yeah. it's, it's an interesting dynamic that, you know, if you're a lower class person or you can't afford as good of a lawyer or you can't afford the clothes or the haircut or anything like that, if you think about it, you could never portray yourself as that type of person in court. No. So it already is this imbalance. No, for sure. And it definitely it definitely plays into it because I I'm not going to get into why I went to court in the summer, but I went to court for a reason. I was only a witness. I wasn't, you know, I didn't <laughs> murder anybody. Um, you but were testifying. Like, exactly. As a witness. Yeah. So I was under the impression that I had to dress super nice. So I wore a power suit and everybody else was just wearing like just normal clothes. Carly dressed like Hillary Clinton. Yeah. Hillary Clinton. <laughs> Young Hillary Clinton. <laughs> it was great. So. Yeah, so yeah, beautiful. I mean, <laughs> thanks. So yeah, you there is this there is this whole imagery of how you need to look and yeah. and it, it it's sometimes it is a representation of your character. If you want to look like a um a law-abiding citizen, you dress a certain way. Yeah, you don't wear Echo Unlimited jogging shorts, which I'm sure he was probably wearing when he killed her, but yeah. <laughs> who knows. Actually, this was the 70s. Echo probably didn't even exist. Definitely didn't exist, no. but uh, yeah. Okay, back to the story. We're getting distracted. Um, so, okay, so then the lawyer's basically saying, like, you know, giving him, feeding him what to say. So, I'll read this passage. They are big lawyer's words that come out of Clarence, but what he's saying is that him and Margaret got to mess around in the car, but when their clothes were off, Margaret laughed at him, and to him, that was a good enough reason to take his knife and kill her. Did he say what I think he said, Robert asks? He said he did kill little Margaret because she made fun of his cock, says Frank. I'm gonna bring the shotgun tomorrow. And we've all been there, and <laughs> you gotta just power through. You can't murder somebody for laughing at your teeny tiny... You gotta just power through and deal with the uncomfortable situation that you've got yourself in. Why are you looking at me while you say this? Well, who else? <laughs> who else am I gonna look at? <laughs> um. So yeah. So she made fun of his penis, and so he killed her. She made fun of his completely normal, average three-inch penis. So. I guess they feel sorry enough for him because he's only charged with manslaughter. Yeah. It's 90 days in prison and a $500 fine. The 70s. For manslaughter. To be in the 70s again. What an era. <sighs> so, um, her boyfriend, Robert Coyote, is basically yells at him and says, I'm going to kill you when you get out in 90 days. Fair enough. So then they make a plan that... Uh, the group of uh, indigenous guys make a plan that they're going to... They're going to murder this gentleman. Clarence. Yeah. They, they're going to murder Clarence um, because he's he's obviously going to be at the dance once he gets out again because he doesn't learn. I mean, this is a whole vigilante justice system. They, they feel like they've been cheated by the law. 
Mm-hmm. They feel like that the the government forces have not represented them accurately in this in this fight against uh, Clarence. Mm-hmm. So they feel like the only measure that they can really do three inches is take the law into their own hands. Yeah. Um, so they formulate a plot to murder Clarence. Yeah. It's like a murder. It becomes a murder mystery. Yep. So the plan is that Silas is going to be the lookout and kind of get an idea. He's gonna hit him with a Vajra Kedravada. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> I thought that was a Harry Potter spell. Oh, okay. <laughs> Might as well be. Um, so he's going to be... Oh, Avada Kedavra? Is that it? The that killing? That doesn't sound right. Avada Kedavra. What did you say? I don't know. I'm second guessing myself. <laughs> it's okay. Avada Kedavra, I think I said. Oh, okay. Well, it, it sounds like a spell. I'm sure it's a spell sure. somewhere. Um, so they. So Silas is the lookout. And yeah, so they basically see who he shows up with, when he shows up, how he's acting, things like that. And then at midnight, the guys are going to come and they're going to find a way to get him outside and they're going to kill him. So someone, someone, some snitch says, hey man, they're going to kill you. And he says he's not afraid. He doesn't care. He even ends up dancing with some of the girls. Some of the indigenous girls just, you know, having a fun time, whatever. And Silas doesn't like it because he's like, what the hell? Like, why why are they dancing with him? Fair. So the dance goes on. At around 1130, someone comes inside to say that Clarence was killed outside, but no one has any idea who did it. So Silas goes outside and finds his friends and said, says, what the hell? I thought you were going to wait for me to tell you to do it. And they they're like. What are you talking about? We and, just got here. And Silas at this point is relieved because as much as he felt like he had to take justice into his own hands, didn't really want to. He wasn't a murderer. He wasn't no. anybody who wanted to kill anybody. He's not even a criminal, really. So he doesn't want to murder Clarence, but no. he feels like he has to to serve some sense of justice, which is a sad reality of people on the reservation where they feel like they can't get justice from their police force. I mean, at this point, they're dealing with RCMPs, but um, around here, I know that they have their own police force on the reservation, which is not like a super reputable force by any means. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so he, once he figures out that Clarence has been killed, he just thinks that the group that he was with had killed Clarence before he got a chance to, and he feels relieved. He's Oh, yeah. He's, he goes to them and asks, like, hey, why'd you kill him before before me? But he's happy that he doesn't have to spend yeah, exactly. 25 years in jail. Well, because then even even with, like, because they, they had the girls that they hang out with who, who Clarence is, you know, hanging out with and whatever, too, and, like, they're all just having a good time. And But the girls were even, like okay don't like what are you doing like why are you like this is scary i don't want you to go to jail kind of thing right okay don't okay don't (laughs) which is the funniest way to respond to somebody when they're like i'm gonna kill somebody okay don't (laughs) (laughs) yeah so they're all worried they're like please don't like we don't want you to go to jail yeah so um flash forward silas is like what the hell guys they're like we don't know what you're talking about we just got here um and then someone says they're over there and points at the group and is just like they're over there they're the ones who did it they're carrying shotguns at this point because they want to kill him yeah their plot is to show up to kill him it's that old story where it's like who done it you show Mm -hmm. up to kill somebody they're already dead you're like what the hell i lugged these shotguns over here for nothing 
Uh, so they're at that point where they've yeah. they've showed up to kill somebody, but he has already been killed. So they get taken in by the RCMP, and while they're in the car, they're saying that he was sexually mutilated before he was killed. Um, and they said, was he shot? And the police said, well, you should know. But it turns out he was stabbed. So, and obviously, in order to be sexually mutilated, you can't really... Sh- well, I mean, you can shoot someone in the dick, but... But sure it's a small target. It might be hard to hit. Uh, <laughs> yeah, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, rumor has it. Anyway, so long story short, they end up being tried and or like not tried, but questioned by the police, and it ends mm-hmm. up being revealed that these were not the killers. No. So, in the end, it is revealed that. So, in the end, um, well, spoiler alert. By the way, <laughs> I didn't even sorry. think to mention that off yeah. the top, but this. Both of these stories will be spoiled. Yeah, so the D- so the DNA wasn't a match. Um, so it turns out, and Silas saw, Silas was a witness to this, he saw one of the girls take Clarence outside. So one of the girls, one of the indigenous girls that he was dancing with took him outside. So it's one of his girlfriend's friends, took him outside, and then shortly after he was murdered. So he basically got his girlfriend and the friends to burn their clothes that they were wearing that night. Sexy. And no one ever found out what happened. And the this end. story was written in the 70s. Mm-hmm. And uh, we'll do like a little quick uh, sociocultural synopsis yeah. right now. But uh, it was written in the 70s, so... Late 70s. But I, I don't think that really matters because it's still an issue today, you know, so... Yeah, that's what I mean, though. It's, yeah. it, it's transcended into an issue of today. And yeah. I think that now, more than ever, the story is really relevant. Yeah, I would say so. Because, I mean, given the fact that this has become such a huge issue in One the country. One of the leading campaign promises of Justin Trudeau. Mm-hmm. Which he apparently, well, clearly apparently, still hasn't delivered on. No, because the... The council that was supposed to work on it has basically essentially crumbled. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, this, the progress has been yet to be had, and the promises that were made have been yeah. yet, to be, yet to be fulfilled. And that seems, to ha- that seems to be happening a lot with this movement, where they build these councils, and then they end up kind of disbanding, and then they come up again, and uh, the same thing kind of happens. And it's it sucks that this is still an issue, and it's getting worse. Because, I mean, at this in this day and age, I mean, we're fighting for the rights of of pretty much everyone else and this is something that we are still dealing with yeah i mean the definitely uh indigenous people in canada get the short end of the stick Mm-hmm. no pun intended yeah well, yeah Clarence, i feel like Clarence it's not penis. a time i Clarence feel like penis. it's not a time read about, the room talking about <laughs> i know you're talking about Clarence. three inch three inch piece right. three inch piece um so yeah so it's you know it's it's a huge issue today um and uh there's a little bit of a uh i have a little tidbit here um from the i have a little bit of a like a an interview from the author and then also just a little fact from um that same reserve historically how life kind of life there is like so um so as we said, uh, he obviously faced a lot of flack for this because of how he used real names of people um, that lived there. And um, Frank Fence Post. <laughs> he's the real MVP. 
if you watch the movie, Frank Fence Post is actually the best character ever. I oh, lo- yeah, like, they, I forgot. They made this into a movie. Yeah, they did yeah. make it into a movie in the 90s. Um, yeah, and it. the movie was pretty good, yeah. Um, so, so yeah, so it's it's one of those things where he, you know, he makes a lot of negative stereotypes toward them and, you know. So. Yeah, but I mean, that's the point. I mean, this guy's not writing this story as like, as a natives are dumb and they're they're shit people who mm-hmm. are who are criminals and doing terrible things in our society. In fact, it's the opposite. What he's yeah. saying is that they get the short end of the stick. To use the metaphor again, <laughs> like they yeah. really don't get the same types of opportunities that yeah. we get, and that the system is against them. So mm-hmm. he's not writing this like for people that give this story criticism like i know there was criticism that he's a white guy who wrote this story Mm -hmm. but then there's also people who are using the criticism of that like people in power never use their voice for minorities yeah so why and that's a whole cultural appropriation debate right like people Mm -hmm. that's a big buzzword now cultural appropriation but how if these people don't have the power of publishing or don't have the power to get their voices out there how is it supposed to yeah and how is this guy being scrutinized for trying to bring light to those issues through literature yeah no i get i totally get what you're saying i mean for forever literature has been a medium to voice issues concerns and ideas of society mm-hmm. so this guy he's a white guy writing about native issues but yeah he's using a platform to help bring awareness to those issues mm-hmm. so why make this why demonize this guy it doesn't seem like he's not on their side, but people are upset with him for writing about that. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I guess it's just kind of one of those things where it's like, well, who's this guy to illustrate the plight when he doesn't know because he hasn't lived that way? Which is a fair, I guess, a fair argument. But at the same time, why should he not try? Yeah. Like, would it be better if he didn't try and just wrote something about something completely, like, wrote a story about something completely different and didn't try to bring light to those issues? Mm-hmm. Like, sure, I'm, I'm sure there's things that could have changed or I'm sure there's uh, insensitive things like calling somebody Frank Fence Post, unless that's somebody's real name. But, I mean, maybe he was lackadaisical in his research, but how else is he supposed to bring light to the issues? I, don't, yeah. I really don't understand the argument here. Yeah, no, I, I, get, I get what you're saying. Um, and there are some, I do have some little, uh, because I'll, I'll go f- I'll go to the, the CBC News article first of the actual accounts from that area. Um, so it turns out that, so I'm referring to an article from the CBC from 2013. Um, so that particular reserve, um, there was actually in 2011, a five-year-old boy was killed. Um, by a group of kids and um, so it was one of those situations where I guess the youth in that area feel that you're an outcast if you're not part of a gang yeah I mean that's how a lot of people in poverty get by Mm -hmm. and um, yeah they just they just kind of attribute it to that the gang like gang activity alcohol and violence is just a part of growing up on the reserve so it's an it's the unfortunate reality. Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. So that was that was a thing that a little tidbit that I found from even just recently that there's still that activity, and even in this we see like not necessarily gangs, but it's groups of people um, 
Clarence's group is a prime example because he's a fighter and he's, you know, and I'm not defending him in any way, but he's kind of, he's led to believe that you need to fight and, you know, you need to do all this stuff. And I'm not afraid of, I'm not afraid of this other group of people at all. And, you know, when in reality, like it's, it's ever like, it's just this, it's the same. It's two groups of trouble. Like I wouldn't say troubled youth, but Two groups of, like, of youths. I guess I'll say youths. I don't like saying it because it reminds me of my cousin Finny. But um, <laughs> two groups of you youths. You should always want to be reminded of my cousin Finny. Well, that's true. Um, two groups of youths that use violence as a way to feel big and accepted. Yeah. And they find that it's the right way to solve problems. Yeah. And, and it's it shows the similarity between the two of them as well. It's not even just necessarily just this person against this person. It's this person is doing it for this reason and this person is doing it for the same reason. It's just to feel like you belong. We've all got little cocks. That's the moral of the story. <laughs> for all sure. of us have three inch penises. For, yeah, sure. <laughs> even me. <laughs> um, surprise. Hey, metaphorically, we all have a three-inch penis, <laughs> all right? We all have things inside of us that make us feel inferior. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, you're right about the. But I would say now, though, in this day and age, and especially, like, I do have a quote from the author as well. In this day and age, you couldn't write a story like this. Yeah, And absolutely. have it be something that would be, like, even now it's not real. Like, it's it's not, even then it probably wasn't as widely accepted as, as it should like it 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 shouldn't have been like it i mean the story itself is great like the narrative is great it's just the things that come with it you know i think now more than ever because it's a different time people would want to hear this story from an indigenous person yeah i would agree so you would you'd be more apt to be able to publish it if you were actually an indigenous person Mm -hmm. oh for sure yeah but i mean even then publishing is such a a dying industry it's such a crumbling industry Mm -hmm. that they're only publishing stories that they think are going to make a quick buck yeah Uh, not to say that there's not any good stories being published now there's i'd say stories that are being published are there's still a lot of great stuff being published Mm -hmm. i think publishers still understand what a great story is Mm -hmm. but i don't think that you know, I think it's it's more determined by how can we make a buck off this? Yeah. Because you have to. You have to that's how the industry has to survive. Yeah. Well, I mean, and that even goes back to this is this is the last piece I'm going to share and then we'll move on to yours because you you have a lot to say about yours, I'm sure. Um so this one is uh he was inter- he was interviewed by McLean's and um he uh he had written a book about JD Salinger. So it is a different story that he wrote. It's just this is kind of goes back to what he what you could say about what he's written here as well. So um, the person asks, do you think the era when writers of fiction can occupy the sort of place uh, as being a widely read, quite famous novelist is coming to an end? And he said, I don't think it's as possible as it was 30 or 40 years ago. He discusses how Catcher in the Rye has sold millions of copies, which is phenomenal. But the publishing industry today is just, I couldn't break into the market today if I was just starting out. 
the publishing industry is down to a few dozen mainly adventure and romance writers. There's still some academic fiction out there, but it has an incredibly small audience. Nobody really cares about it. So essentially, if you're a budding author, you want to be writing, you want to be published, you want to make a name for yourself, hardcore small penis erotica (laughs) is what you need to invest in. You need to start pumping out three inches of gray Mm -hmm. fan fiction. But in that, is he making the argument that everything that he's, well, or is it just that story? Or is he arguing that he writes academic fiction in general? Well, I think he's saying that academic fiction in general is, I think he, he's probably saying both. He's, I don't think those are mutually exclusive. I think he's saying that story, but also academic fiction in general is not a, mm-hmm. a popular uh, book, a popular book genre. Right but is this a case study? Is this a research story? Well, yeah, because then you say it's based on a real... It is, but I mean in terms of... But he's saying academic fiction. I see. Yeah. So, yeah, this would be academic fiction. Mm-hmm. Okay. No, that's fair. That's a fair... That's a fair assumption for sure. I just... It just kind of got to me a little. Because, I mean, yeah, you think about it that way, but then he's gotten so much flack about how he's represented people. Yeah. Whether they're real or not. Because, well, like... You know, not to harp on this for too long, but even the there's a story about Bukowski writing um, the story. He used to write like the whatever the thoughts of a dirty old man or whatever that mm-hmm. article that he used to write. Mm-hmm. And in one of those, there was like a film crew that was following him for a documentary, and he wrote a story about it that was completely inaccurate. Like Bukowski had gotten too drunk and he passed out and he was just like acting like a maniac. But when he wrote the story, he wrote that the filmmaker was the guy who got too drunk and passed out and acted like a maniac. I see. And then when the filmmaker approached him about it, he was like, he was like, well, I'm the hero of my story, buddy. Mm -hmm. So I think writers will always write from their own perspective. Yeah. And the older I get, the more I realize that everybody has a different perspective. Everybody has a different bias. So I think that pertains to this, where this guy will write from his certain bias, and when you're in that situation, it's inevitably going to be different. There's going to be things that you wanted included that weren't. And mm-hmm. Any piece of literature that's based on something that's actual, especially when it's fiction, there's going to be parts of it that piss you off if you were actually there. Yeah, that's true. So I'm sure he got a lot of flack for that. Yeah, for sure. Shall we move on to yours? Yes. My story is Day Gone, written by H.P. Lovecraft, who's my favorite writer. Uh, This was his first story that he wrote as an adult. He wrote it in 1917, but it wasn't published until until 1919 in the November issue of The Vagrant. The story is written in the form of a suicide note, and the author of the suicide note is a merchant marine officer who was carrying cargo in World War I across the Pacific Ocean when his ship was attacked and commandeered by um, a German sea raider. And the Germans took all the crew on ship as hostages, but they treated them really lackadaisically. So they didn't, uh, they didn't monitor them really. They were prisoners, but they didn't treat them harshly. And they treated them so easy that this unnamed narrator was able to escape, which uh, is kind of like... What are you going to do? You're going to sail on a raft across the Pacific Ocean? We don't really have to monitor you. It's this or death, basically. <laughs> so he finds a raft, and he, he sails endlessly on the Pacific Ocean for days. He gets food. He gets water. He gets provisions. And he just keeps floating across this endless blue. 
and he kind of passes out. He's in and out of dreaming and stuff because what do you really have to do when you're on a raft? It's like masturbate and scream is the only two things you have to pass the time. And either way, no one will ever hear you, so. No. And you're going to get a sunburnt dick. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. Um, (laughs) And uh, so he, he ends up like landing on this black swampy marsh and uh his his boat is crumbled it's tipped over it's broken and he can see just blackness for miles upon miles endlessly you can see this black soot so to him it, it looks like the bottom of the ocean and there's rotting dead fish corpses there's fish he's never seen before just like buried in this black mud after a couple of days, he starts to explore, and he walks. Uh, it takes him about two days. He walks, and he finds this huge peak. And he realizes that he can see better at night, actually. The moon is uh, a better illuminator than the sun, and the sun has heat and stuff like that, so it's just easier for him to travel and try to find help uh, during the night. So he walks for a couple of days, and he finds this gigantic peak, and just out of curiosity, scales his way down and finds this gigantic monolith in the middle of like where the peak meets there's water and then there's peak on the other side and there's a monolith in the middle and it has these carvings of different sea creatures and this like hybrid between man and fish and as he's admiring this monolith a gigantic fish creature pops up half man half fish kind of his scaly arms pops up out of the water and hugs the monolith like he's worshiping it and uh So the man frantically runs back to his boat. He's singing, he's laughing, and he just kind of blacks out. He remembers a big storm, but he blacks out, and he ends up in a San Francisco hospital. So he talks to, um, he talks to like different academics and stuff and tries to find out anything he can about the, the fish god Dagon. Can't find anything out about it. Thinks he might be crazy. He gets addicted to morphine. He runs out of morphine. This is the end of his suicide note. He's talking about how he thinks that the world should be taken over by these fish creatures. And he's not sure if it's a dream or if it was real or if it was a hallucination. He eventually decides that he's going to jump out of his window. But right before he does is he's writing the final words of his suicide note. He feels, or sorry, he hears the slump of a fish-like body hit his door. Banging on his door. And then he sees it in the window. So he writes at the end, I can hear it against the door, I can see it in the window, the window, to the wall, to the sweat drop off my balls. And which is where Little John got that lyric. Mm-hmm. No, not actually. <laughs> but it is funny, I was like writing a suicide note, and then he hears like his, like something that's about to kill him coming. But then he writes and it And he in still the like note. writes it. Like I've seen enough horror movies to know that you just gotta run. Well, I would have run if I, the second I saw that monolith, that would have been it for me. Uh, let alone climbing down. Like, do you know what? I, I don't think I could make it down that thing. Like, that takes a lot of, like, fuck, that guy must be hitting the gym every day. Yeah, this was the weirdest uh, episode of Intervention I've ever seen. Yeah, for sure. Because <laughs> it's like you go to the story of, like, why he's addicted to morphine. And it's like, well, you see, I went down this thing and I did the, and it's like, okay. Sure. Usually it's just like, I went down to Tim Hortons. My dad diddled me, so now I do oxies. Yeah. Um, <laughs> at least the Canadian intervention. 
Uh, so the interesting thing about this story is that it's Love's, Lovecraft's first step into cosmic horror, which became his genre, and it's the first story to feature tones of his Cthulhu mythos. And people say that this this doesn't really tie into the Cthulhu mythos because they don't know whether the fish god is Dagon or if he's worshipping Dagon or really what's happening. Um, they did make a movie loosely based on it, um, but even that's uh, more based on his Innsmouth story. Uh, it does. And the w- one thing I do really find interesting about the basically all of H.P. Lovecraft's cosmic horror stories are, are this idea between reality and hallucination, mm-hmm. which really is one of the most interesting uh, aspects of mental health for me. The idea that some people are schizophrenic and they can just create these realities in their mind that don't exist and have like these narrations in their mind that are just coming from some deep part of their brain is such a scary thing. And it's such an unshakable fear of everybody to lose your mind. Oh, for sure. And And sorry, the narrator in this story is not a guy who's a criminal. He's not a drug addict. He's not... Like until the end, but he's he's a reputable guy. He's an officer in the Navy. Mm-hmm. He's a Marine officer. So he's a, obviously a reputable, intelligent person. But he's seen some shit. Yeah, he breaks. So is this a... Is this reminiscent of shell shock? Is he imagining these things? Is this a real terror that sleeps beneath the sea every night like an undiscovered beast, Mm -hmm. an undiscovered culture of these half fish, half human hybrids? So it is uh, it is a good metaphor for shell shock, which at the time they were just kind of discovering and just kind of realizing was a real thing as well. Mm -hmm. And um, in, in the end, does the fish come to kill him or is that another flashback? Because it does Mm -hmm. it does say that in this story when he sees the gibbous moon he has a flashback of seeing the creature again Mm -hmm. so it could be just one of those quick memory things could be a flashback a flashback yeah yeah. just a trigger you would say i guess yeah yeah um but yeah it's, it's interesting it's uh it's the idea of like taking a normal person i think any batman fans out there will like this but like the killing joke is the same idea of taking a normal person and seeing what it takes to have them break into insanity Mm -hmm. and hp lovecraft's stories are all riddled in that and it's also interesting uh with it's also interesting to tie in to the idea that people with extreme ideas or changes in our in our society are always mocked and called crazy Mm -hmm. before the idea comes into fruition now there's something that you said that stuck out with me as well. Um, the fact that this was his first story that he wrote as an adult, and the fact that it takes the form of a suicide note. Now, yeah. do you think there's some significance in that? Well, his stories are riddled with death anxiety. Mm-hmm. I would say the biggest motivator for him is death anxiety, and I think a lot of the metaphors for what he wrote about were these overarching elder gods these beasts who Mm -hmm. were could wipe out humanity like that okay and the you can never beat them and -hmm. i think that was a metaphor for death or something that you can never beat yeah or even just becoming an adult and becoming closer to death as well as an adult because and 
even like maybe even just the death of his own literature as a younger like as a younger writer as well because i mean there's also that part he's taking that big step because in terms of hit like would you say that from that point there was an like an evolution in the way he wrote past that absolutely yeah. yeah okay he takes on like larger concepts and constructs bigger worlds i see okay so there you go and ended up dying of cancer and because he just avoided the symptoms mm-hmm. this was a man who's terrified of death i read an interesting thing on a blog that talked about the idea that he's so afraid of this fish god or this fish creature even though it never really did anything to impose any harm so it was really just a matter of it having its own culture, it even having its own religion and its own art, that he f- feared it because it was unknown from him. But it doesn't aggressively impose harm upon him. But he does talk about how it's going to come and wipe out humanity and things like that. And there's a lot of anti-Semitic tones in H.P. Lovecraft's work. Mm-hmm. So it is like... That is an interesting metaphor to look at his way of how he views other cultures yeah, and things that are different from himself. And it's definitely, yeah, it's a huge fear because that, that was even a big thing back then in the 1900s is the fear of the other and the foreign, right? So it could be that as well, that these fish people might not even necessarily be something at, like some like what they are. It could be, like you said, it could be if it's, it could take an anti-Semitic tone or whatever else because that was... And we even see that today with, like, aliens and stuff. It's that fear of the other, the fear of the unknown. So it it could be anything, really. Especially considering, you know, how it's, like, the end of the sea and whatever else, right? So. A completely uncharted, undiscovered landmass. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. And so it does tie into that as well. And it is interesting that because he is known as being anti-Semitic... And he undeniably has those tones in some of his work. In this, he says that these fish people should just kill humanity. Because humanity are these warmongering, insignificant creatures. Mm-hmm. So w- they should rise up from the ocean depths and kill us all. And this was, n- he wrote this in 1917. Yeah. So this was during World War One. that he was writing this yeah. too. Okay, yeah. So... That says something, doesn't it? Yeah, for sure. It's just that fear of what could come even. New beginnings. New beginnings as an adult. New beginnings as a post-war era. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, there's something to be said about that. And it's scary. Like, it's obviously clearly had a huge impact on his mental state. Yeah, I would highly recommend uh, checking out some H.P. Lovecraft, though. Uh, there's a great book, The Complete Fiction of H.P. Lovecraft, that has all of his stories in chronological order that they were written so you can follow his writing as you go along which is a really interesting way to do it mm-hmm. and uh we'll be doing more short story episodes in the future i think um i'll try not to constantly go back to hp lovecraft <laughs> but no promises yeah oh no worries um so now we're gonna play some mad libs okay. and off the show on a high note okay so the one we've chosen is called family rock band so we're starting with an adjective Tiny. We'll go with the theme of the podcast. Tiny. Last name, Fence Post. <laughs> of course. You get some theme music to play when we're uh, filling in these questions. Adjective. Uh, hairless. Hairless. Noun. 
boat. Planet safe. <laughs> Another adjective. Fishy. Fishy. Plural noun. Balls. Perfect. There we go. Noun. Crop top. Another adjective. Racist. Keeping the H.P. Lovecraft theme going. <laughs> Plural noun. Skulls. Noun. Um. Necktie. Thank you. Adjective murderous. Plural noun. Dildos. Oh, man. This is a children's app. <laughs> All right. Adjective moist. Another adjective scaly. All right. I'm sure there's... A, what were you going to say? Stinky. Okay. Let's do stinky. If scaly... If if another adjective comes up, we'll do scaly. Noun. Toilet paper. Adverb. Sexily. Letter of the alphabet. D. Yep. Is that what you're going to say? Yep. <laughs> and noun. Shit cutter. Oh, <laughs> fine. I hate that word. <laughs> well, I hate those words. Okay. Ah, Lala. Ready? I am ready for this. This is Family Rock Band. Okay. I don't come from your average tiny family. That's because we're all part, part of the Fence Post Family Rock Band, <laughs> and we lead a very hairless life. Yeah, <laughs> modern era. For example, by not shaving his boat every morning, my dad saves enough time to practice the fishy drums. Whoa, hold on. That's so weird that we chose hairless and the shaving thing is in the story. Mm-hmm. So he's hairy. We chose the worst adjective you possibly could have. Yeah. That's crazy. So the dad's hairy. But he sh- doesn't shave his boat. That's 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 a slang term for your taint. I guess for your penis, who knows. Um my brother doesn't participate my brother doesn't participate in extracurricular balls at school because he plays the electric crop top. <laughs> that's a great <laughs> instrument. I want to see that. The electric crop top. That'd be a great name for an indie band. Yeah, like do you put it on and it's got like things in it and you just like plug it into an amp? You play it with your nipples. Yeah. My racist sister <laughs> doesn't have time to date Skulls because she sings lead vocals and practices for four or five hours every necktie. Well, <laughs> oh my god. When I'm not writing our murderous songs, I'm tickling the dildos on the keyboard. <laughs> so I don't have any free time either. Hear that. Finally, mom is our moist manager. Ugh. She books our band to play at weddings, stinky 16s, and toilet paper mitzvahs. Oh, that seems racist. Oh, my God. Following the H.P. Lovecraft The sister's theme. racist, so, I mean, come on. She calls them toilet paper mitzvahs. <laughs> Maybe someday, if we practice sexily enough, we'll, <laughs> yep. we'll get to make a music video for DTV and play sold out shows at Madison Square shit <laughs> Yeah. So there's that. I'm crying. That's our own short story, Family Woo. Rock Band. <laughs> yeah, all right. So we'll probably keep that as a tradition as well. We'll write our own short story via Mad Libs at the end of our short story episodes. But thanks for listening, everybody. Yeah. Uh, you can check us out on the gram. Mm-hmm. at pantless pros and on twitter at pantless pros as well mm-hmm. and uh, we'll be throwing new episodes at you weekly 
uh, for all your sexy shit cutter literary needs. That's how we're ending this. What? I don't know. Do you have a better sexy one? Sexy shit cutter literary needs. No, let's just, yes, that's good. We can deal with that. <laughs>